Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me remotely from her home studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you are staying safe, healthy, and having a really blessed day. In today's episode, we're talking about healthcare ethics in this time of COVID-19. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question on government funding and mandates that might affect the mission of Catholic schools and parishes. And finally, stick around for the bricklayer segment for resources you can use to start changing how you engage with others in discussions leading up to the fall elections. We're joined on the line today by Father Thomas Knobloch of the Diocese of St. Cloud. He is the pastor of Holy Spirit, St. Anthony, and St. John Cantius Parishes. He has a Ph.D. in healthcare ethics and serves as a consultant in healthcare ethics for the St. Cloud Diocese and on several committees and boards on issues related to theology and ethics, including our own Minnesota Catholic Conference, Life, Family, and Healthcare Committee. Father Tom's with us today to help explore some of the challenging questions that arise when we are dealing with a pandemic. Father Knobloch, welcome to the Bridge Builder. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation, and thanks to the listeners. A healthcare ethicist might not be something or a position that some that a lot of people are familiar with. What does a healthcare ethicist do? Is it uh, an academic type position, or what? What does it do practically, and and how do healthcare ethicists play a role in a healthcare setting or in a healthcare facility? Most practically, it means I go to more meetings. But really, it's a great it's a great opportunity to learn and uh, sort of get behind the scenes of some of the complex issues that are involved in the provision of health care. So really, ethicists and ethics committees have three major functions. One is policy review and creation uh, to ensure that policies, particularly that those, those that affect um, the most fundamental goods of, of the human person and human life, uh, are ethically uh, responsible and responsive, that they certainly for Catholic facilities, that they are faithful to the magisterium of the Church, that they follow natural law, reasoning, and um, professional, legal and professional standards of care. Second is case consultation when there are issues that arise, conflicts that arise about what is the appropriate or ethical course of treatment or care for individuals that case consultation is a significant part of the role. And third is education, continuing our own education as committees and as professionals and ethicists, as well as educating the broader community, such as a program like this. You've worked with St. Cloud Hospital, which is a Catholic hospital in the Diocese of St. Cloud. How practically does a Catholic healthcare institution like St. Cloud Hospital ensure that its practitioners and professionals and staff and the whole hospital community is following Catholic teaching in the provision of health care. There's a couple of particular ways in which that's done. Uh, in our setting, and it's not real uncommon, um, there are the members of the corporation, uh, which includes the bishop of the diocese, the vicar general, uh, the prioress and sub-prioress of the Benedictine sisters who founded the hospital back uh, in 1928, uh, and for lay people that those four members appoint. So there's kind of that regular communication. We meet quarterly between the, the church and 
the administration and leadership of the hospital. And so that creates good uh, understandings and a sense of responsiveness and responsibility to uh, Catholic identity. Also, it's policy that any provider who practices at St. Cloud Hospital signs off on abiding by the ethical and religious directives um, that the U.S. bishops promulgate and are interpreted by the local ordinary. Thanks for explaining that. I don't know that a lot of folks are familiar with that actual process, and so you really helped us unpack the nuts and bolts of what that means in a very practical way for a Catholic healthcare facility to live its mission and its identity. So thank you for that. What are some of the ethical questions and that frequently arise on hospital ethics boards and the types of things that you've been in, involved in consulting on? I've been on that committee now for just over 20 years. And, uh, you know, at the early days, we might have done two or three case consultations a year. Now we are in the 20s or approaching 30 consultations a year. And some of that reflects the complexity of healthcare today, the uh, pluralism in our society, differing value judgments that individuals and families would bring to a decision about a loved one. Probably the most common question is about the provision of life-sustaining treatment. When is it appropriate to move to palliative care or hospice? When is it too early? Are there alternatives? How do people come to a decision about what is the appropriate boundaries of the uh, scientific possibility to cure. So some of that is is ethical conflict. Often it is really more about communication and uh, differing values and understandings of uh, the prognosis and diagnosis of patients. So a large part of consultation really is listening to one another. Uh, we always start with the medical facts and um, consultations are not only the ethics committee and the providers, but also family members or decision makers, uh, healthcare agents. It, it's intended to be really foster good dialogue to understand one another, as well as the ethical parameters within which we uh, operate. So most of them, I think they've all been able to resolve themselves often with some aha moments or some clarity that did not exist before the consultation. And that's that's a good outcome. should also be very clear that ethics committees, and certainly the work of an ethics consultant, is merely advisory or consultative. We never make decisions for people. We don't decide life or death matters. We foster that dialogue and then encourage good decision-making on the part of the provider and patient or family. Thanks for unpacking that for us and giving that inside look at the process there. I want to get to COVID-19 in a moment, but first, uh, more generally about emerging ethical questions. Science and technology can do so many things with regard to healthcare and, and provide services and procedures that were unthinkable a generation ago. What are some of the emerging ethical questions that healthcare facilities, particularly Catholic ones, are going to be faced with in the years ahead, even outside this COVID-19 context? We continue to improve our capability to sustain life through artificial means, uh, ventilation, uh, which, of course, becomes a significant part of the COVID conversation. New pharmaceuticals, new um, surgical techniques, 
um, some improvement in neonatology, caring for the very young and very fragile. Um, I think now it's up to about, or I should say back to about 20 weeks um, is the earliest survival. And some of those uh, small, frail, but very powerfully resilient children, those create some difficulties for us. Certainly genetic medicine will be a large part of this, tailoring treatments to individuals and being able to uh, be more specific in how we intervene. At the same time, a lot of that is very experimental at this point, and there's some unknown, unforeseen possible consequences of that. So as we push those boundaries of what's scientifically possible, the Church always says, uh, one of the great lines from Donum Vitae from back in 1987, what is technically possible is not for that very reason ethically appropriate. And so trying to keep that ethical focus on the good of the individual human person created in the image of God uh, and called to eternal life really becomes essential. We measure technology not by its success or its profitability, but by how it impacts the human person. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Father Tom Knobloch, a priest and healthcare ethicist from the Diocese of St. Cloud. He's speaking with us a little bit about the work of healthcare ethicists ethics boards and healthcare facilities, and we'll definitely get to ethics challenges related to COVID-19 in a moment. Father Tom, I did want to ask you about two sort of macro questions as they affect healthcare ethics and the challenge of making ethical decisions within this context. One, the economics of healthcare, healthcare consolidation, uh, the movement away from sort of a a clinical service provider approach in the sense that the medicine was a a profession and now it's more of a practice with wage earning uh, professionals. And at the same time, the cultural dynamic of healthcare was focused more on patient autonomy and consumer, it's a consumer driven culture with a focus on patient autonomy. How does that, those two dynamics, how do they create ethical challenges? Yeah, it's a constantly moving target. And of course, uh, we've heard for 40 or 50 years that the current healthcare system is unsustainable, and yet here we still are. So there has been a movement, often called the movement away um, from volume to value. In other words, as you say, for a long time, providers were reimbursed based on how many procedures they did. And so there was little incentive to do a cost-benefit analysis or to ask, um, is this really necessary? Uh, is this the best kind of healthcare, or is it merely the most common and the most profitable kind of healthcare? At the same time, moving towards value raises that possibility of um, multiple tiers of care, who can afford certain things and who cannot, who, what will insurance cover, what will not be covered. And as you say, if I'm merely a functionary, a wage earner, what happens to the patient-provider relationship? I have to say, in my experience, I've been really highly impressed with the physicians and providers that I have seen uh, in operation, their genuine concern and compassion. There's always outliers, of course, in the human family in various ways. But uh, it's been very inspiring to see how people have really risen to the challenge of trying to keep healthcare uh, with a human focus and not merely a dollar focus. And that's a constant tension because you have to have some degree of resource in order to continue to provide services that people need. And yet, very often the balance is, um, is difficult 
defined. And certainly, as you mentioned, COVID-19 is really going to strongly impact that as revenues and the ordinary provision of care have been interrupted. The question of where funding will come from to continue to provide those services and reimburse the people that provide them will be a, a challenge. And that will be an ethical issue as well. How do we maintain quality, access, safety when the resources are increasingly stretched? Yeah, and it appears that based on the closing down elective procedures and all sorts of other services to make room for uh, the COVID-19 crisis and addressing that, uh, the economics of healthcare have made that much been made that much more difficult because of all these challenges. To go back for just a minute, the other part of your question is about autonomy, and really that brings us into a little bit of the COVID discussion because sure. you are correct. Much of our Western culture and the Western approach to medicine is based on uh, autonomy. What does the patient desire? And um, it's more of a transactional relationship between an individual patient or family and the healthcare system. Times of, of pandemic and public health focus don't change our ethical commitments. There's not a separate set of values and goods that we uh, sort of plug in in these times. But it does create a greater sense of focus on the common good and what does the community need to survive and thrive rather than just what does an individual desire. And that's a difficult transition sometimes to make. We're so used to living in a culture of abundance that scarcity is something that's more difficult for many of us to manage. Yeah, it seems that that sense of solidarity and the common good has been brought out and the incoherency of statements such as my body, my choice have been made clear by all these, by all this uh, pandemic and what's mm-hmm. been going on. Mm-hmm. What are, uh, Father Knobloch, we've uh, been spared, it seems, up to this point of having the uh, health care system overtaxed here in Minnesota to the point where there aren't enough beds, there aren't enough ventilators, there aren't enough ICU uh, units and, and healthcare practitioners to take care of everyone like there uh, was in Italy, at least for a time. But uh, mm-hmm. assuming that, uh, you know, we hope that that doesn't occur, but these pandemics, they give us an opportunity to think about, as you said, our principles and how they apply. Uh, they change, they stay the same, but it might apply in a new context like a pandemic. What are some of the principles with regard to the scarcity questions that you raised? How do we start thinking about these things when, you know, there's only so many pharmaceuticals or beds or ventilators to go around, how do we start making choices about who should get them and, and who shouldn't? What are, the, what are the first principles there? Starting in 2009, revised in 2011, and now revived with the current uh, pandemic, there is a Minnesota Ethics Collaborative that has sort of, University of Minnesota, the, um, some profession, some um, healthcare systems that have been involved in this the Minnesota Bioethics Center to try and, and they've done some public meetings over time to try and come up with some principles that guide. Now, granted, these are not faith-based, at least not directly, though they're certainly in many ways coincidental with our faith. The goal is to be as fair and as transparent as possible to preserve and save as many lives as possible. And that gets you into that public health question. It's not merely the greatest good for the greatest number, but how do we recognize 
and I go back to the statement of Jesus, whatever you do for the least, you do for me, and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's kind of the foundation of Catholic social teaching, that we are not mere monads or isolated individuals, um, but rather we are called into community, made in the image of God, who is a communion of persons. And so the Catechism will talk about our concern for others must be as broad as that of Christ himself. That's difficult for us to make that transition. The goal of this is to eliminate as much as possible bias. And sometimes we think when we allocate resources. Personally, I don't like the word rationing. I, I understand that that's kind of the practical consequence, but it sounds like sort of an arbitrary decision that we just don't want to share what we have. Allocation is maybe a more accurate word. We have a limited supply. Uh, and triage comes really from the battlefield, the idea of who is most likely to survive. I often say in a disaster, by definition, things don't go well. So we cannot prevent all the harms that will arise from a pandemic. We can act in such ways that we don't intentionally add to those harms. So it becomes sort of a shift of our understanding of what can be done and they might not be able to match all of our desires and ideals, but that's where we need that solid, objective, ethical framework. So decisions about allocation, whether it be ventilators or antivirals or personal protective equipment, however, that uh, whatever resources in question, uh, has to be based on objective clinical indications rather than that's a big donor to the hospital, or I never really liked that guy, <laughs> that there is this sort of blinded, objective understanding that's really based in medical information, prognosis, diagnosis. I think your point is extremely important for uh, all of us to be reminded of. The, the, the goal of the mitigation strategies, onerous as they have been to some, is really to prevent that surge from overwhelming the healthcare uh, organization. So it is uh, our contribution to the common good, wearing that mask, observing social distancing, whatever form that takes. It's not merely an outside imposition, somebody made me do this. I can also view it as a contribution that I can make in a small but significant way to the common good. Those allocation questions were not at that point. So while we have plans and we have a lot of conversation about what we would do if, it's important to recognize that right now we are able to continue to meet the healthcare needs of people. It might, as you say, for elective uh, procedures, it might delay some of that, but it doesn't mean that we can't uh, continue to care for people as we normally would. Daniel Salmezi, um, physician and um, Franciscan brother has been speaking on some of these issues with Catholic Health Association and makes clear that it's ethics as usual. We don't, again, have this different set of standards that we follow. Until we get to that point where triage decisions need to be made, we do what we have always done to care for each person. Informed consent, the understanding of what is possible and what we're providing and what we are proposing is, is still individualized care is still the core that guides our decision-making. 
the life of each person, the needs of each person have to be at the center. And this is part of the, the rationale in a triage officer so that the provider or of care for an individual isn't also the person that will make the triage decisions because you, you're torn then between those two goods. And so by separating those roles, you ensure as much as possible a more fair, objective, reliable procedure. Avoiding bias and discrimination is key, and I, and I think that's the important principle that folks need to understand is that you can't discriminate based on things like age or sex or disability. It's who can respond most effectively to the types of treatment, and that's, the, that's really the standard that we need to bring to those discussions, and that's the important one True. to keep in mind in this context. Correct. Clinicians would look at a SOFA score or other objective clinical measures, SOFA is sequential organ failure assessment. The time that a patient would need to be on a ventilator, for instance, or the course of antivirals um, that would be necessary, and the existence of comorbidities. Are they likely to survive to hospital discharge? Those are kind of the parameters that guide triage decision-making. But again, we're not at that point. Uh, thanks be to God, at, at this stage. Father Knobloch, we've got time for one more question, and I think it's an important one and, a, and probably a challenging one, too, for you to answer, so I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but Minnesota has the vast majority of COVID deaths have been in uh, nursing homes and long-term care facilities where many mm-hmm. patients have, in, you know, they fill out intake forms, or their family does, that have DNR, DNI orders, and as a result, some of these folks aren't getting ventilators or some of the things they need and are dying, and that's probably one reason why we have a high death toll. But is, is, it, is this COVID pandemic exposing um, perhaps a, a, the face of the throwaway culture here in Minnesota? Do we need to rethink uh, about the where? And I, I don't want to be uh, uh, push you into a corner in terms of your answer, but is, is it exposing how we're warehousing the elderly perhaps or some of the challenges and the things that need to be rethought about how we treat the elderly, how we care for them at the end of life? What are your thoughts on that? I think that's always a a valid uh, point to raise. And, you know, that can happen across the whole age spectrum and other uh, distinctive features of each person. Is it education? Is it socioeconomic background? There's a number of ways in which we can be biased and view some people as lesser I don't know that we know enough at this point to be able to answer that reliably. These are people who are in facilities because they are frail, elderly, have many other comorbidities. The average person, when they do autopsies, has 11 other health problems besides what causes their death. So we know these are very uh, fragile people. At the same time, we do need to make sure that we honor each life across the spectrum Uh, So uh, there will probably be a closer look once we uh, are in a better position to do so at is our care adequate, what has really led to this. It'll probably be a mixed bag. Some of it is just the condition of those individuals, and some of it might be suboptimal response and care for them. Father Knobloch, we're grateful for the time you took today to join us on the Bridge Builder program. For our listeners, I've known Father Knobloch for 10 years. He's a man that combines monastic serenity with some of the most clear-headed, thoughtful analysis you can find on a whole bunch of questions. We're grateful to you, Father Knobloch, and grateful for your ministry. Thanks again for joining us on the Bridge Builder today. Thank you, Jason. Thanks to the listeners. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. 
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect to Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, so a couple of weeks back, we had a discussion regarding Catholic schools and receiving federal and state government funding related to COVID-19 relief. And one of our listeners is curious as to why Catholic schools would want to receive any funding from government sources. She's asking whether that would cause government to be able to require or mandate that schools teach a certain curriculum in order to receive that funding. Well, fortunately, that hasn't been the case up to this point. So whether or not to take government money is a prudential question, and one has to weigh all the factors and strings and and considerations at stake. One of the one of the things that people should remember um, that there are two things that really speak to the issue here is one, most Catholic schools are economically fragile institutions. They're run off donations and the generosity of people in the community, the parish, in many instances, they're hand, I call hand-to-mouth operations. And so they serve an important function. They help provide a ladder out of poverty. And if there can be assistance, and that doesn't have strings, and that can be helpful. And there's always a fear that the certain mandates or curricula could be imposed, and if that is the case, then to not compromise our mission, then we shouldn't take the government money. In the context of what's going on right now out in the community, there are two other principles that matter. One, the state of Minnesota has declared that all students, no matter what uh, school they attend, public or private or homeschool, are entitled to various forms of student aid. And so there's already government money that flows to the schools, but through the students. And that's an important source of revenue, textbooks, counseling aid, transportation money, et cetera, et cetera. So regardless of which school you choose to attend, government has already said that we're helping the students, not the schools. So there's money that flows through the students. Now, in the context of the pandemic, everyone's a part of the challenge in addressing the public health crisis, so everyone should be a part of the solution. Private schools have had to shut down, just like public schools, to mitigate the spread of COVID-19, and as money is available to community groups and entities, businesses, uh, local units of government to recover from that, then we should be at the table as well to receive those funds. And that's, in fact, what we have been doing uh, at both the state and federal level is talking about making sure that Catholic entities and Catholic schools are included in pandemic relief funds. We've been part of the solution, and we also need to be a part of the resources and assistance that flow from the community coffers to community groups that serve on the front line like our Catholic schools do. Again, we should always be assessing whether those will potentially compromise our mission, but if we are feeling good that they don't or if they start, we can always pull out later. So that's a really good question. I'm glad it was asked, and it's great to have another opportunity to address it as well. Thanks for really unpacking that. And what do you have this week for our listeners in the bricklayer segment? How might they be able to start laying the brick to bridge the gap between faith and public life? Well, it starts with civility, right? It's not just what we do, but how we do it. It's important that Catholics model civility in a polarized climate and a polarized time, uh, just because we have political actors and public officials who don't behave in a civil way doesn't mean we shouldn't be leading the way on it. And just because one is civil, that doesn't mean that one can't be passionate or one can't have convictions. But we can disagree with each other without being disagreeable. And I think that's the point of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops' Civilize It campaign. It's called Civilize It, Dignity Beyond the Debate. We highlighted that campaign a few months back, but as we get closer to the election, it's even more important for us, especially as Catholics, to lead the way with civility. 
We talk about how politics is the place where we decide together how we're going to live together and what laws our society will operate on and, and how we can actually come together to build the common good. There's not always going to be a clear-cut right or wrong answer to every issue. Again, we can disagree without being disagreeable, so we're going to have debates about that and highlight the pros and cons of each situation. But the key to any debate is civility, and that word civil and civility comes from that Roman word, the chivis, the chivitas, the city. This is the ethic and the sensibility, the attitude, the way of acting for citizens who live together in that common city. We need civility to work together. Without civility, we land ourselves in the muck of politics in the negative sense of that term, losing sight of the dignity of every human person, even with those with whom we disagree. So again, to help Catholics across the nation lead with civility, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is providing resources online through its Civilize It campaign, including a pledge you can sign and share with others. Civilize It is about making room in your heart for those with whom you disagree. Go to www.civilizeit.org to take the pledge today. And the pledge talks about civility, clarity, compassion, and to that we might add charity. And that can be the source of our civility. So again, www.civilizeit.org. That's all the time we have for today, but remember, you can always be a part of our show through the mailbag segment. Just email us at show at mncatholic.org or catch us on social media. Remember, you can also catch up on past episodes of the podcast. Go to mncatholic.org slash podcast or look for us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build the common good brick by brick. Have a blessed day. This is Jason Adkins, and for Kim Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening. Take care.